Hello everyone, welcome to episode 35 of Poetry Says. I'm Alice. In this episode, I had the chance to talk with Corey Wakeling, whose work I've admired for a really long time. I was so excited to talk to him. So we chat at the start a little bit about living between Australia and Japan and how place changes your writing. And then Corey delves into a fantastic poem by Michael Farrell. It's called An Australian Comedy, and you can find it in his book, Cocky's Joy, which came out in 2015. Corey's actually going to be back in Australia in just over a week from when this episode comes out. So if you're near Uni of Western Sydney on Feb 24th, you can see him there. And then a couple of days later, he will be at the University of Melbourne. But if you can't make it to Sydney or Melbourne, I'm sure you'll get something out of this chat. so much for talking to me today Corey. Yeah my pleasure. So if I want to get to where you are in Japan right now how mm. do I get there from Tokyo? Well what you do is you have two options you can take either a Shinkansen a bullet train um, or you can fly and actually I've been flying lately only because uh, the route is just that much faster and actually ultimately depending on the passage that you take depending on where you're going in Tokyo, because I'm normally going the other way, um, actually flight means less trains. Um, but anyhow, you can either get a plane or a train um, to to Osaka, and then from Osaka you get about a 20-minute uh, express train to Nishinomiya City, which is halfway towards Kobe, and I live in a small suburb by a river in Nishinomiya. Oh, that sounds beautiful. And it is a city then, it's not like a small rural town or anything. No, I, I envy friends of mine that do live in rural parts just because they manage to take advantage of, you know, the kind of incredible uh, Western Japanese landscape and the mountain ranges. Uh, they get a bit of snow, whereas we get snow down here as well, but the snow doesn't really sit on the ground, whereas they're, they're making what's called yuki darama or snowmen with um, with their families and, you know, funny things like that. Uh, and, and you know, with, with transport being quite easy to access, it means that actually you can live it really quite remotely and at the same time still, you know, access metropolis and work and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I used to live uh, up on the coast uh, in Fukushima, actually. Um, Did you? Wow. Yeah, you can't go where I used to live now. Are you serious? Yeah, which is a real shame. But um, it was, yeah, exactly as you're saying, you kind of get on the bullet train and then within two hours you're in Tokyo. And even better, within two hours you're back out of Tokyo into your little fantasy world of living with, (laughs) you know, beautiful, often quite old Japanese people um, in the mountains. Yeah. yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, I've been to Fukushima once, actually, and where I had been actually isn't um, within the the 20-kilometre radius or however big it is, it changes, um, mm. but from the from the disaster site. And I've been meaning to go back, even though, you know, people are very still very, very cautious about going essentially even in the prefecture. And it's also, it's also damaged the reputation of... Uh, Tohoku, the north, um, when in fact, so I went to a conference in Aomori, and Aomori is at the very top tip of, uh, of uh, Tohoku, and uh, people coming to that area, um, they were, 
you know, very cautious about coming to Tolga because it's now got this image of it being a place of disaster, um, being where, you know, not just Fukushima, but, you know, uh, prefectures just up that coast um, where, you know, incredible, um, incredible devastation took place. And, you know, the whole, the whole contemporary meaning of Tolga has changed since that event. Um, even though that actually that that port that landmass is, uh, you know, actually the disaster is closer to Tokyo than um, Aomori City, for example, um, but the whole event is associated with that larger landmass above the Kanto area, which is in which um, Tokyo is the center. Yeah, it's become yeah. like a shorthand for the disaster. It was crazy when I went yeah. back after the earthquake. Um, you did. I was with a guy, and he had a Geiger counter out because we were up in. Um, Iwate Prefecture okay. and he was saying oh, look, it's better here than it is in Tokyo <laughs> oh wow <laughs> like, hmm, okay well that's, that's good, good to know yeah, yeah. it is a, it's a real shame but it's totally uh, sublime because you know here you are you're going on a, a pastoral um, a pastoral stroll with um, with a person and you've got a gaga can in your hand yeah oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah that kind of thing um, but it is an incredibly beautiful part of the world and don't be mm-hmm. scared, anyone no, who's listening, go no. there. It is amazing. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. So, yeah. yeah. But getting back to Australia, I was really interested to ask you because I know that you moved from Perth to Melbourne and then you moved uh, from Melbourne to Japan and I'm wondering what those two really big moves did for your writing, how they changed mm. your writing. Okay. Well, I first actually is interesting when I think about those moments of transit because I came, I visited Japan before I ever visited Melbourne. So after my undergraduate degree, I went to, I did a year in Japan in Saitama Prefecture outside of Tokyo. Oh, no way. I did that too. Did you do that as well? Yeah, yeah, I was in Saitama. what, what, What city were you in? Uh, I was in, um, I'm going to have a mental blank now, Urawa, Urawa City. Urawa, well, that's where my wife is from. That's the oh, city wow, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, but uh, actually, uh, I, I worked in Irumashi. So I was in, uh, in Japan for a year, uh, teaching English as, a, as, an, as an assistant teacher. And I had never visited Melbourne before as a, as a child. So basically the first, uh, well... You know, I was born in the UK, but basically the first 20 years of my life I spent in Perth, and then I went on my first, not first trip abroad, but first trip um, involving living somewhere. Um, well, no, that's not quite correct to that. The first place living independently uh, was actually in Japan. Yeah, same. Uh, yeah, yeah, just that first kind of, oh, my mum's not here. <laughs> <laughs> Although I had a host yeah. family, but yeah. Oh, you did? Well, yeah, I was been... a couple of years earlier, like um, 18, 19 type thing. Okay, okay. Yes, yeah, so, so that was an important transition for me. Uh, then I actually did some travel through Europe um, with my, you know, with um, um, my partner who had become my wife. Um, we did that through Europe. And then we came back to Perth. And after that, I applied for grad school uh, at Melbourne and got it and then decided to move to Melbourne. And then in Melbourne, it was very exciting for me because in terms of my writing, uh, I had been writing prose. For mo- I've been writing prose mostly, 
dabbling in poetry and reading poetry actually quite a bit. And in terms of my own interests, having a, a, a divergent interest in writing, never really knowing, well, writing it's, you know, what is the purpose of writing? You ask yourself that question, why am I writing? Why, what, what is this drive? Because for me, it was very, very intuitive and still is mostly intuitive, I'd say. I don't really, I don't really write unless I feel compelled to, in other words. Why, um, you know, why contribute my words to this, you know, this, 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 this crazy landscape of writing, which is so, you know, so it doesn't need my, my addition. <laughs> uh, it's always been this kind of intuitive, well, there's, there's a drive inside, there's a drive in me to write, so, you know, to stay sane and to, to stay uh, feeling, to, to maintain a kind of healthy version of the appetite rather than an unruly version of the appetite. I need to continue to write. And so I came back from Japan um, writing mostly prose and writing some kind of failed novels, if you like, and then um, actually being more com- more and more confident about my poetry. And then arriving in Melbourne, suddenly I'm meeting uh, some poets and having poets that I could communicate with, share with, and actually being, uh, being approached with a, a series of new poets uh, and very engaging and very exciting um, possibilities in terms of poetic practice. Suddenly, I just felt a lot more emboldened. And it's not that I ever really gave up prose. It's just I became a lot more excited with poetry. So what was it about meeting those people? Well, what was your opinion of poetry before you met those people? And, and what did they tell you that sort of changed that? I think it was basically my vocabulary was more limited. My vocabulary um, of authors, practices was more limited. Uh, specifically uh, at university, I'd read some really great um, Australian poets. I'd read Marion May Campbell, um, I'd read Anya Volvitz, and these were Australian writers that I felt much more, much closer to than other examples that I, um, that I had encountered before going to Melbourne, uh, you know, more so than poets like Les Murray, um, more so than poets uh, like, uh, well, you know, there's a whole bunch, but really this, you know, work that was dealing with often, a, I suppose, a, a, um, a francophone uh, francophone history rather than an anglophone history, specifically those that poetry was exciting me. But I didn't really go far beyond some of those Australian examples, um, and my my education in poetry more generally was very much informed by beat poetry. So I read a lot of Ginsberg, um, I read, uh, you know, Corso, I read Burroughs, I read people like that um, when I was in high school and then in university. And it was American mid-century poetry and 60s poetry that I was very excited about. But somehow I'd never really come across New York school poetry. I'd never really gotten very closely engaged with concrete poetry. I'd never really got engaged with the more avant-garde end the more trans transnational end um, of um, of poetic practices. So, I was basically a beat poet who liked philosophy, who liked um, a certain kind of avant-gardeism in Australian poetry. Came to Melbourne, and suddenly I'm being confronted with poetry that I'd only read in part. So I read a bit of Gig Ryan um, at university, but I didn't read very much. But suddenly. People are reading more of Gig's work and Gig's work from different periods, and I was getting very excited about that. Uh, poets, the poets who are actually publishing and living in Melbourne too, uh, really engaged me. So, and that's one reason why I, I, uh, 
I thought I would bring Michael Farrell's poem and a recent poem for you to, for you to look at and for us to talk about because Michael Farrell has been one of the key um, key. It's, you know, I I want to say influence, but I feel like influence doesn't quite capture the importance um, of Michael. And I'm going to say Michael because he is a close friend, and it doesn't make sense to say Farrell as I would other parts. Um, but there there's a certain kind of interaction. There's a certain kind of uh, again that vocabulary of practices, uh, which I confronted when I met him. Uh, I wasn't just meeting a person with their own distinct way of writing. Actually, meeting Michael and being party to uh, you know readings that um, we we had this group called um, poetry group, uh, and it was just it was a never never the same ensemble of people, but people coming together to read poetry in each other's company. And it always changed, and it always depended on who was on the news on the on the list at the time. And it was never. I think a lot of people, more um, maybe ten times the amount of people, were aware of the group and actually attended it, because normally the group was only about six or seven um, to fifteen people each each time. And so basically, yeah, it was that encounter with a huge vocabulary of practices, which gave me a lot of choice and gave me um, moved me beyond a largely francophone influenced. Um, uh, uh, I suppose, interest in poetic practice um, and moving towards syn syntheses, if you like. So no longer did I have Australian poetry and, you know, avant-garde French poetry or symbolist French poetry at some kind of distance from each other. I guess coming to Melbourne, suddenly I have found all so many of these practices colliding. I completely get what you're saying, actually. Um, yeah. It's, I had a sort of a similar but sort of on a on a lower ebb kind of reading experience i started yeah i think one of the first poetry books i ever bought was david maloof's revolving days okay and i remember reading it on the bus from sydney to canberra oh, wow. um and just thinking i will never be able to do this you know it's just like <laughs> this is completely out of reach and then I, I the next poetry book i bought i think was Tracy Ryan's scar tissue oh. um, and that just yeah really was like an explosion it was just like okay we're allowed to talk about all these different things <laughs> we're allowed to use this kind of language and not we don't have to use that kind of language yeah. Um, so yeah what you're talking about in terms of like uh, a plurality of um, yeah like poetic languages it really makes mm. a lot of sense to me because you need somebody oh, to great. sometimes like show you and say no come over here look what these guys are doing you could do that so, yeah i yeah. think so because um and and certainly for me because i'm i'm someone who's a reader and again i'm not i don't believe i have a privileged place as a writer i have a a a, a kind of a, an assigned sovereign place to write if you like i don't feel that um anybody's begging me to write anyone's demanding that I write, although when after publishing more, um, having a readership is such a special thing, you know, you then start to value that. However, basically there is this overwhelming um, desire to write and you don't realise how influenced you are by your environment until you start to go on these, you know, adventures into other, you know, linguistic territories you've never been before. Um, so, you know, again, you know, having a certain kind of palette um, of of language before i arrived in melbourne and then having that devastated and exploded to use your word having it exploded um meant 
a massive change in me, uh, and uh, but also a, a massive sense of permission and permissiveness. Uh, it's not that these. It's not that suddenly I found style or something. It's not that I came from an amorphous place and found style. Actually, it's quite the opposite. I think I had a, a more rigorous, more preconceived notion of style before I arrived in Melbourne, and then being in Melbourne, seeing so many different syntheses of different linguistic practices. I would say that then it became an explosion of that, and I then felt kind of more more permission. Do you sort of mean that there before moving to Melbourne, you felt like you sort of had to be a certain kind of poet to have permission to be putting work out there, or? I think as a young writer, it probably wasn't that uh, it wasn't that uh, that well defined. Okay. But there's an element of that. But there's an element of that. I think there's. I think partly that's quite right. But it's. But it's never. Never knowing that I felt that way. Uh, instead, it was more like, who would read this? What? 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 Why would anyone want to read this? Um, you know, I had tastes which were very much informed by, again, by beat poetry and, and but also, experimental prose of the same period. Um, you know, and, you know, their lives seemed so much more extraordinary than mine. Uh, and nor did I necessarily feel that, oh, I, you know, I, I was realistic enough or, or at least I, I didn't have the, the silly kind of pretentious idea that we can bring back, um, you know, beat lifestyles and somehow reproduce our own kind of beat paradise. Instead, it was more like, no, no, I, I kind of want to be more honest um, about what is happening at present and deal with the complexity and ambigu- ambiguity of what um, life is at present for me and so yeah that's the thing you know as a young writer it was more like I liked reading uh, inevitably your writing ends up being a little bit like um, the things that you like to read whereas suddenly I could write something and its readership was far more tentative far more contingent on an immediate group of people you know I suddenly had ears I had ears for this work um, it was no longer enclosed in that claustrophobia of one's own wonderful you know an exciting imaginary space of reading you know I, I, see, I see a kind of Borgesian um, way of writing which is very much which is wonderful and um, is informed by the intrigues of being a reader I think the intrigues of thinking deeply about the act of reading whereas I was I'm bringing that sensibility into a new environment like Melbourne, where suddenly uh, I have this Byzantine, uh, uh, you know, interest in reading and philosophies of reading, and uh, I'm now encountering a bunch of people who also care about those things, and it gives a spatial reality, it gives a kind of a physical reality to those things. Suddenly, talking about Borges is funny to some people, or talking about Baudelaire is funny to some people, or it um, gets a negative response for another, from another person. And there's this kind of, I guess the easiest way to describe it would be there's a social dimension to it. Yeah. Well, I, as I was saying to you before we started, I came mm. to The Sporting Poets, I think it might have been your last one, and yeah. um, Anne Vickery was reading a poem for you, and even though I was sitting creepily in the back not talking to anyone because that's my MO, um, <laughs> I was aware that this was a very emotional moment for everyone because you were moving to Japan. And yeah. um, part of me was like, oh, I'm so jealous he gets to move to Japan. And then another part of me was like, 
Wow, that must be a really hard call to make because like you say, you've got all these ears around you, you've got a poetic community. Mm. What was it like to kind of make that move? Oh yeah, I hadn't thought about, you know, I don't think about that reading very much, I think quite intentionally. Right, sorry. Put me in quite an emotional um, moment. Oh, uh, you know, I was, I was overwhelmedly touched, I guess. Um, that's all I could say. I'm very, very... I'm still very, very close to um, to Anne Bakery and to, to other people that were there. And, yeah, I mean, a massive mournful loss. And I'm still not re- really reconciled to the realities of that. And I already feel the effects because even though I'm in direct and close correspondence to many of those people, it's not the same and it never will be the same. And it's very hard to describe uh, what one loses but there was that I've been describing to you the transformation that took place in me and you know it's it's kind of inextricable from my own from my 20s you know I can't even there's not there's nothing it's not even about all these things which sound as if they pertain to literature poetry selfhood practice but it's actually my 20s as such and to have left Melbourne and left on not just good terms in the sense that uh, the relationships were strong uh, and these are enduring relationships, but to have it punctuated by people's poetic gestures like Anne's um, and also that event, that that reading taking place so soon uh, prior to my to my leaving I don't remember how soon it was but I think it was only like a week or a few days before um, I was leaving for Japan I felt it as a massive loss um, I don't know how else to I, I, I haven't reflected on that moment very much because I don't know uh, what its implications are I'm still kind of living it uh, and you know in many ways living it doesn't matter that it's Japan I think living in a new place um, Japan is not new to me, but actually Western Japan is new to me. Uh, living in a new place after after being, uh, I suppose, germ- germinated, incubated in a certain environment um, in such a complex and such a meaningful way, I it is a lonely experience. It's very lonely being um, being here. Yes, I've made friends. Yes, um, the job is is really. I have a wonderful job and, and things are going really well and I've now got a daughter and um, I'm occupied with new things. But I do feel that something which was very closely related not just to my writing but to my reading and to my, my own intellectual being, um, to my own thinking being as such, to have left that and left those people, I don't know how to account for it except as a loss and a loss which a loss whose scars to use a cliche or who's you know you know psychic damage is is something which is physical and and felt every day by me uh i certainly write a lot less poetry to put it in really practical terms i write far less poetry the poetry i am writing i um is it is a further step and is sustaining me and i'm glad about it but I'm certainly writing it a lot less, and that may be because I'm away from Melbourne. Yeah, the, I really 
truly feel like I understand the loss that you're talking about from the opposite perspective, because this is a conundrum okay. that you end up in if you've got kind of a heart in two countries. And yeah. I did the opposite thing, left Japan to come back to Australia. And I had a wonderful community of people who were just yeah. about to go through a devastating natural disaster. But um, yeah, uh, it was it was like having a limb removed and I still mm. don't quite have it fully grown back <laughs> it's yeah, yeah you can't you can't really come back from it i don't know i'm not being very comforting yeah. am i <laughs> no but I, I really don't feel that you can yeah i really don't feel that you can uh i guess at a distance i don't know what it's like for you but at a distance seeing those people's lives change uh is of immense interest it's not necessarily a pleasure but yeah uh, i don't know it's a certain kind of uh when you're not embroiled in other people's lives, then you, there is a there is there are some uh, virtues of perspective when one is at distance. I think, and maybe maybe if that if that group is still thriving or still has its own interesting dynamic, um, still doing things um, without you, um, at least in my case, I don't necessarily feel any. I think I think the the I think the the feeling that people would predict would be that you're envious or that you um, you know you wish you were and participating in it but in my case I kind of see how it's different and I take a great interest in it and, and watching it develop differently basically um, I'm really enjoying watching what's happening to contemporary Australian poetry at a distance um, not being embroiled in it in the, in the same way uh, I don't I, I guess it's interesting that there are aspects of it that are actually uh, enlargements of my ability to take stock of of interesting things that are happening, and I guess this is really a critic's uh, uh, critic's interest, a critic's uh, viewpoint. I'm now talking about not as a practitioner. Um, as a practitioner, I have lost something enormous, and that's a, a social group which was always changing, but with a core um, who were interested in hearing my work and engaging with it. So shall we come to the poem that you have chosen to share today, An Australian Comedy? Sure, sure. sure. So uh, you sent this through last night and I've had a chance to read it today. Right. Such a fun read. That is so <laughs> much fun. Uh, it's just it so fun. joyful. So let's start with the structure. How would you describe uh, the structure to people that don't have it in front of them? Sure. Um, well, An Australian Comedy has elements of other of Farrell's poems. So it uh, is a kind of a faux story. I guess that would be the easiest way I could describe it. I mean, it is a real story, but what I mean is it's also a poem and it often has interruptions. So in that sense, by virtue of having interruptions, it's a prose poem with lots of interruptions. Um, however, one thing that's not like a prose poem, that's more like a conventional story, is that it has a kind of, it aspires to beginning, middle and end. It's more like a fairy tale or a fable that never quite gets off the ground. So I'd say basically it has a fable structure, uh, which at the same time um, has a number of poetic, uh, or has a number of, basically, I think, I think Michael's also the master of the non sequitur, but non sequitur transformed, because often these are not, these are, these are not, these are, these are false non sequiturs. They're non sequiturs which seem to be, again, you know, non-secretary is based, you know, means it's diverting from the subject at hand. It means it's, you know, m meaningless by virtue of, you know, leaping out of the context. 
But here, actually, the non-sequiturs are amazingly meaningful. So a, a bunch of non-sequiturs in a fable-like structure, which actually end up having weird resonances. Yeah, fable-like is a great way to put it, actually. You've just okay. yeah, put it into context for me. Why right. don't you... Do you want to read some of it? Just yeah, sure. Yeah. Maybe... Maybe some of the stuff which really seems to engage with Australia as a conceptual problem. Um, I'm going to read from the bottom of page 18, where it says the merlion is Singapore's heraldic animal. Oh, yeah, 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 great. I'm going to read from there, okay? And I'll, I'll, read, I'll read to the end of the poem. It shouldn't take too long. Cool. From there to the end. The merlion is Singapore's heraldic animal, but like the rabbit and badger, there is no taboo against eating it. There are several restaurants in Chinatown where you can get a merlion toasted at your table. They make good yard pets as long as you have a pond. After 15 cups of tea, you feel like a string of bucks that dusk for money in the twilight. Listening to the tragedies issuing from the cathedral and throwing in joke grenades. The stirring, the stirrup spoon stirring in the pancake jar. He licks it, his tongue like an exploding cocoon. His feet act like possums, a waste. The dog is miming, the careless whistle of a good friend. The flags say, we want overtime, and refuse to even cast shadows on the poor swaggy lost in the 21st century. Some say he used to be an Anglican bishop, but he seems to have a dignity about him as he tries to buy a cabbage online. It's a beauty for the right people, the ad says, but it sounds like duty, and it tastes like it too. Australians like to see alternative farm animals, Turkeys, donkeys, it's too boring otherwise. Driving down the information highway, seeing dog DJs now turned swaggies with their records under their arms. That they heat up over campfires waiting for a track to spin them to perdition wherever you go in a secular universe. Poetry anthologies pile up by the side of the internet, rusty as a prayer belt, while witches dance around them in army uniform. One thing about the army is you don't get to go to art galleries much. If you're on leave, you can duck into the big museums, but you miss those little galleries. That's where it's all going on. And you know, so often the big ones are undergoing renovations just while you're in town. The war dead lie down in the shadow of the goat farm. A bunyip reclines on its non-novel reading arm. It's probably just a pig showing off. Two larrikins. They have a knifely charm. Are there on a date? What are you into, mate? They say like a couple of badly translated flags or figs. Grasshoppers wait confidently for the syrup. What do you make of that? Yeah, what do you make of that? <laughs> um, you just have to smile, really. I mean... Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> if I, uh, I interviewed... Um, Robert Wood a couple of months ago and he was talking about this question of Australia as an impossibility or is Australia possible like as a concept mm. and mm. reading this poem brought me back to that question um, and I think maybe the line that jumps out at me most from that section that you just read is it's a beauty for the right people yeah it's kind of like that's, Australia that's, that's, that's... is great if you're a certain kind of person yeah 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 <laughs> And, right. and then going on to say, but it sounds like Judy and it tastes like it too. There's so much <laughs> tasting and flavor and like 
licking and tongues and know, food insects. is a particular pre- preoccupation of coffee's joy, which is quite quite right since it's you know uh, it's uh, slang for golden syrup. Mm. I think it's so fantastic that you highlighted the question of uh, normative cultural critique, and I think that Farrell's always engaged with that. Um, however, that 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 critique itself is not an end in 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 of itself. Um, we've seen how numerous political movements that have tried to enact a a properly decolonizing critique of Australia, of white Australia, uh, of you know, of engendering a more thoughtful and a deeper knowledge of Indigenous history in the country, but also of uh, Australia's trans-Pacific realities or transnational realities that have been here for over a hundred years as well. Um, all of these really entangled issues. Um, I think what's very special about, well, let's say a poem like this, is that at once it it uh, it presents Australia as negotiable, and I think that's such a an emphatic and singular and important gesture. I think you can't get anywhere until you position Australia as negotiable. And then second of all, I think what's so important about a poem like this is that critique can be fun. That all of us, that, that you're not going to encourage people to be involved in critique unless they enjoy it. <laughs> you know, um, you think about the controversies about the Lamb ad, uh, you know, that went on recently, or a whole number of things. I think as usual, but this has always been the case, and possibly why comedy is one of the highest forms of literary intervention is that critique never really gets going unless it's humorous. Critique never really gets gained solidarity unless it's humorous. Critique never really has a social cultural dimension until it's participated in, if you like. So I would, yeah, I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to strongly agree with you that, uh, in effect, we have these, you know, the question of the possibility of Australia uh, being raised here. And the fact that it's even raising it is is important. But the fact that it does it with such humour and with such negotiability, I think, is important too. Yeah, and it's not accusatory at all. I mean, no. I guess part of that is the fact that a lot of the characters that pop up, like there's George is here from Singapore, um, mm. there's the Swaggies, there's... Mm. Um, there's Gay Sons and Molly Meldrum and John the yeah. Baptist and things like that. I mean, it's such a collage. But there's no one's a victim and no one's a bad guy. Um, I don't think. I mean, I don't. I don't mm. get that from reading it. It's it's kind of equally. It equalizes them all, and it's kind of yeah, got a got a smile for them all. Yeah, um, and I don't yeah. think. Yeah, I. I mean, yeah, I. I wouldn't want to endorse too much the idea that. Um, everything and everyone is and I know you're not saying that but um, I think I think collage can be interpreted as making all a surface and I do think you can engage with the poem in that way however I for me I think what's very critical here is that uh, everyone appears but is part of a, a changing kind of social and uh, some you know even semiotic ecology in this poem that you know, their role is up for grabs. It's not necessarily equalised. Um, it's up for grabs. And, you know, we I, there are different emphases, you know. I think 
if you take there's there are other poems um, where Michael um, you know fantasizes about uh, an Aboriginal family visiting Buckingham Palace, and you know that's kind of employing it. If you wanted to read it this way, you know the the operation of the subaltern talking back to the master signifier. There's there are parts of Farrell's work which could be seen to have much more of a direct um, critical function, a lot more direct political function in a post-colonial setting. Um, but then situations like this, where yes, it's a very very happy scenario. Uh, so I guess I guess all I want to say is I don't think Michael's happy about everything in Australia. No. <laughs> nor, 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 nor do I think his poetry presents that. Um, however, this is incredibly fun uh, and we look at these these often clichés, these big clichés, quite differently when we read his work. Yeah, and it's called An Australian Comedy, but I kind of immediately read that title as, you know, Australia the Comedy. Like we're Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, that's great. That's yeah, great. So, like, hilarious in trying to make this... this um, venture kind of yeah rumble along in some kind of shambolic way yeah, but yeah totally... the, the other really interesting thing that i find i've got a copy here of break me ouch which is yeah. um a book that that michael put out yeah. uh, a couple of years ago i think and it's it's a really beautiful almost like oh, a graphic yeah. novel it's like a collection of um little comic strips that have yeah. have words throughout them, have what well, with their poems really, poems with pictures yeah. to them. Um, yeah. And what I find really fascinating about every one of his lines is they are non sequiturs and they are sort of like Steinian I suppose, but mm. they all feel very, um, they're full of feeling to me, they, they really mm. feel like they, they all mean something very particular and, and it's not like throwaway in any sense. No, yeah. no I think I think um, when people think about experimental linguistic practices and even graphic practices in that case, because they're not even words, they're images um, often, uh, experimental graphic um, practices are often interpreted as very serious avant-garde interruptions. Um, and of course, some are. But I think we've been... We, we're now more than 100 years after Dada, and Dada itself was, in, was incredibly complex in terms of seriousness, the question of seriousness, and, in, and the question of uh, artistic heritage and the ways in which they interacted with that and, and, and troubled it, that, first of all, I think it's quite a, there, there are quite bad assumptions about um, movements like Dada, which are, which are too easily aligned with nihilism um, in philosophy, which was... Um, which was becoming popular at the time, whereas we've now been a hundred years after some of these really crucial avant-garde practices, um, there is no avant-garde centre either, and so in many ways I think there, I think we more and more people need to be very very cautious about taking too seriously reactionary uh, accounts of uh, basically novelty of novelty, novelty that they can't understand. Uh, because, as you point out, um, something like Break Me Out is, is fun. Uh, it also, let's be clear, it also engages a completely different audience than poetry um, may normally engage. Um, if, you are a, if you are a scholar of experimental, experimental literature like me, you can see B.P. Nickel and other exper experimental writers in Break Me Out. However, um, you don't have to be. You could be a comics fan. You could be into comics and you could love it. 
you could be interested in you could be a a casual um, a casual viewer of surrealist painting and you could enjoy the amorphous um, you know experimentation with figure in that work um, and basically you could come from a visual arts um, point of view and enjoy that work whereas there aren't you know there aren't I think we really need to value, basically, I think we really need to value the multimedia gestures or the interdisciplinary gestures of poets, because poetry has, I, I argue at least, um, always been engaged in a, a multimedia environment, in an environment where the nature of the word in relation to its um, materialization has always been up for grabs, because what do we know? We know poetry used to be song. We know poetry used to be, you know, oral, uh, and it still is. But what I mean is it used to be predominantly oral or only oral. And so I think this is in this is part of the line through of poetry. And I don't see, um, you know, there, there are people for whom uh, Break Me Out just seems completely off a continuum with Chaucer. But, you know, I'm, I'm much more, as a reader of Chaucer and of Farrell, I much prefer to see these things as part of a, a deviant continuum. And that continuum is involved in emphasising aspects of language which are which have a certain kind of ebullience, have a certain kind of joy. Um, and, yeah, I think you're quite right, basically. Yeah, that's such, I love that. It's on a continuum with Chaucer. Totally. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, you know? Yeah, no, totally. I, you mentioned audience in there, and I wanted to ask about audience in relation to um, this poem. And... Mm. I was wondering what you would say to someone who has a copy of Cocky's Joy in their lounge room mm. and is kind mm. of um, trying to apprehend this poem for the first time. What's a good yeah. way to start reading it? Like, is it good to just let it all wash over you or should you be thinking really hard about what each sentence as it, as it appears? Or? Mm. I think it's such an important question. Uh, so I think when we think about, for example, that poetry works in so many different media, you know, Again, think about Vernon Arkey, a um, really important contemporary Indigenous um, visual artist, and a lot of his works are actually poems um, compressed on a, uh, you know, on a canvas. But he does all this other stuff. He does these amazing short films. And he's an amazing artist. Um, but basically, I think that's the media environment we work in, and I think readers should bring all of their visual, you know, all of their visual language to uh, engage with this poem. That it's not just about. I mean, as you can see, this, this is actually not a particularly uh, difficult sy um, poem syntactically. It's not doing stuff that Farrell does in other poems, where the actual sense of a line uh, needs to be, I think, attended to in with 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 uh, with more than one meaning and with attention and with care. Um, actually, this poem you can read pretty fast because it is so fable-like. Uh, it is so talky. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of hard vocabulary. It has some, um, you know, um, difficult references in pieces, uh, but it actually references pop culture more than it does literary or literary culture or any other more obscure culture. Uh, I think if you are, you know, I actually think this poem is probably more difficult for people living outside of the Australian continent than anything else. I think people from many, many different backgrounds living on the Australian continent will actually have an, an, an immediate understanding of a number of things in this poem and that they should emphasise those things. Those things are not somehow being, you know, I think a lot of people assume that, again, 
uh, poetry which doesn't follow the rules of poetry they've read in the past or, or what they were taught in high school, then it must be doing something more serious, higher, more complex with the pop culture references that it engages with. So, in effect, I think a lot of people presume, ah, okay, it's got all this, you know, it mentions Mondo Rock, uh, it mentions Daddy Cool, uh, it mentions, you know, it mentions Geelong, it mentions pla- places that I know, it mentions Rolling Stones, uh, Molly Meldrum, uh, Anglicans, Anglican, you know, Bishop, goats and farm animals, um, things that they understand, things that are being arranged in a way that possibly they don't quite understand. And they might think, oh, so he must have a higher purpose, a kind of a, a, a destination he's trying to reach with all this craziness. Okay, what is that? And then rack their brains and then not get it. I think that's probably the wrong interaction with this poem. Of course, if you can find a great, you know, a tremendous destination for this poem, that's wonderful too. But instead, I think, yeah, taking that title seriously in the way that you described it, an Australian comedy, Australia as a comedy, taking Australia as a comedy, suddenly we see, well, what, what is a comedy? A comedy is some kind of um, foolish, uh, unstructured, interrupted, displaced performance of a thing. And in this case, there are people who talk terribly seriously about Australia um, and often maintain quite conservative ideologies based upon a very serious version of Australia, all of which can't be sustained in this poem. So I would say that people who are upset about certain orientations of Australia or people who uh, people who think the larrikin, for example, is an outdated and damaging uh, uh, stereotype of white male freedom, all this stuff should quite, I think, should quite rightly see those figures being lampooned in this poem to enjoy, just like they enjoy Kath and Kim making jokes about the suburbs, to enjoy the two larrikins who are clearly... Uh, gay in this poem, you know, it's a massive interruption of the, you know, chauvinist white male myth to have the two larrikins that's gay, right? Yeah. Um, so all of these things are here for you to enjoy and and uh, also completely, and, and comedy by virtue of displacing your expectations, you know, two larrikins on a date uh, displaces your expectations. Um, and I think any reader attentive just to those 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 fun diversions um, can enjoy a poem like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Just have fun I, with it. Yeah. Yeah. Have fun with it. Totally. And, and, you know, of course the implications of having fun with it could be quite large because there are people who don't want to have fun with the myth of the larrikin. There are people who don't want to have fun with, uh, with Geelong. There are people who don't want to have fun with, uh, with uh, the Anzac. And, you know, I think as part of our cultural heritage, enlarging our capacity to um, have fun with, which actually suggests a certain kind of agency, a certain kind of cultural agency, is very, very important. And we see a whole lot of other figures enter that environment, enter that landscape um, here, you know, that we have characters from Singapore, um, which again is, you know, if you live in Australia, you know, that's entirely, that's commonplace. And then yet, how often do we think about Singaporean Australians as um, part of the national discourse? Very rarely. So it's it's poetry like this, which, you know, is called an Australian comedy, um, which has, um, which is a fable, you know, and what are fables? Fables are traditionally uh, cultural, they seem to be folkloric artefacts. So what if in 100 years we're looking back at Farrell's poetry and Australian comedy as a cultural artefact of, um, of contemporary Australia? I think that would be wonderful. 
<laughs> it will be. That would be amazing. I hope that is the case. Yeah. There's so many more things I wanted to ask you, but just before I let you go, I know mm. you are coming to Sydney soon. Is that right? Yeah, and I'm also coming to Melbourne. Oh, um, the reason I haven't, yeah, I haven't put out the advert for the lecture I'm giving at Melbourne University just because I've not been given the actual letter, you know, like the actual uh, uh, advertisement itself. Right, um, right, right. Oh, world yeah. exclusive people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Sydney from the 18th of this month to the 25th. I'm in Melbourne from the 25th to March the 1st. And yeah, um, anybody listening, if this comes out in time, um, you know, uh, yeah, please come to the Melbourne University lecture um, if, you, if you can. I'll put out details somewhere on social media when I have them. This is very cool. Well... Now that I know about it ahead of time, I'm gonna I'll sign up. And, oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. I'll you. Sure you know. I promise yeah, not yeah. to sit in the back like a creepy weirdo. Please don't. Please, <laughs> please don't hide. <laughs> we'll see you uh, back home soon. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much.